Food. What did you have for breakfast today, Dr. Alfonsi? Luckily, I, I did pick a good breakfast and that was, it wasn't necessarily planned, but uh, I had uh, oatmeal with uh, raspberries uh, and some hemp hearts. That, that, sound, that, sounds, that sounds really healthy. I, I, I had cinnamon rolls and coffee, so uh, I'm, I'm just shaming myself live right now. Um, but today, uh, this is Physician Founded a Series uh, made by How It's Med and Macadamian. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Jeff Alfonsi, the founder of Inner Analytics. And I mean, the more I read into what you've done, you've done an amazing amount. So it's actually incredible. I don't know how you've done so much. But anyway, just let's let's get down to the facts. How do you feel about food, Jeff? <laughs> um, I mean, well, it's changed over time. You know, uh, growing up in an Italian household, you know, food was you know important. And food is a cultural thing. It's a enjoyment thing and and then as you go into medicine and you see the negative impacts of food or or at least uh you know some some metabolic risk factors that come with how we eat um then you start shifting towards a bit more of a focus on well how do we use food um for prevention and for health as well and so ultimately it's it's an optimization problem is you know food is still you know it's it has to taste good it has to be convenient and it has to be healthy. And it's, so now it's around, you know, discovery of, of all the different nuances of different foods. Um, how do you make them taste good and yet still uh, be enjoyable, easy to make and prevent chronic disease or, or kind of be the best we can? So I think now I've just foods become a lot more complex and, and I'm a lot more interested in different types of foods, different recipes, different spices, different combinations um, to kind of find that that balance. So so it's, it's become a lot more top of mind these days. You know, that, that was supposed to be part of a cold intro that I, that I was going to stack on to my initial question, but you went into it in so much detail, like you do with everything in your past, um, that I'm actually not that surprised right now. But so to dive a little bit into your past, um, you, you did a degree in applied science first. Uh, why did you do this? And you, why did you focus so much on imaging on your projects, uh, it, during your projects during this time? Yeah, you know, I think when you, when you're in high school, you're always thinking, you know, what do you what do you want to be? And you know, I definitely had significant um, positive interactions with engineers, and so that was my initial thought was let's go into applied science, which is you know, engineering is what I what I studied at first. Um, but I did also really enjoy medicine and, and biology, and so I went for um, systems on engineering at Waterloo. There was options there for you know, biomedical engineering, we didn't really have a, a full biomedical stream, but that was the closest one. And, and then so, you know, I really enjoyed, it. I think it's really neat to be able to kind of create things and what you can do uh, with technology. And then while going through, you know, there's professors that, you know, focus on biomedical areas. And, and the kind of the big question is, do you want to be an engineer that knows a bit about kind of medicine and health? Or do you want to be, you know, the opposite of a doctor that knows a bit about engineering? And, you know, I, I, I thought I, I preferred um, the latter of the two, just for my preference, but it was, you know, it's a really great background to have for medicine and healthcare. And I think it lets you do a lot of re neat things. Um, in terms of imaging, I just thought image processing was such a cool field. And, you know, I think the first time I started playing with this was, you know, probably 19 years ago or so on a, a co-op term where we were doing um, image processing for is for a cancer center, just like how do we study images? And it's just very interesting how uh, you can use computers to kind of pull insight automatically out of, out of pictures, right? And so that was just kind of a really uh, eye-opening experience. And then ever since, I just thought it was very, very unique and tried to find ways to build that into to other areas that I'm working on. This is a, it's a big foreshadowing moment, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> so um, you ended up doing a degree in applied science with a focus on biomedical uh, engineering, or at least as close as you could you could get to it at the time, but I mean I've seen more schools open up biomedical engineering departments. Uh, I, I guess over the past couple of years, was your intention always to do engineering and then medicine so that you could combine the two fields, or was it more of a serendipitous path? Yeah, no, I think it was more serendipitous. It just you know, as you go through. I liked it. And, you know, to be honest, the first time I applied to med school, I actually didn't get in and went off and worked in another industry uh, and then, you know, realized I didn't like that and wanted to come back. So it was definitely a path that you never really know and you just kind of go through and, and then, you know, you end up where you are and you combine all those different learnings into where you are. So that was very much the path that I took. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
So uh, I, I was, I was about to try to get you to not steal my thunder there because I was going to talk about that. I know. That that's down. why I didn't say anything more than what it was. <laughs> so I, I left it open for you. Thank you. Thank you. So you're not, you're not only an amazing multidisciplinarian, but you also know how to guide conversation. You should just take my job now. Uh, so you, you ended up graduating from, uh, from an applied science degree and then you worked at Barclays Capital. And uh, basically what I read was that you were a trading analyst who was building proprietary models for trading and market making. To me, that sounds like you worked on Wall Street because I don't know anything about what any of it is. So to describe it to a five-year-old, how would you describe what you did? <laughs> yeah, I think I think trading is probably the easiest way to go. So, you know, I, I specialized in trading, um, you know, bonds like government bonds and and something called swaps, where you kind of trade cash for you know a fixed versus a floating interest rate, like you might get at a bank. Um, although I don't know if a five year old necessarily would know that second part, but um, the idea is, uh, yeah, it was basically creating. You had to build a lot of your own models what's the right pricing what kind of strategies do you do um so it was very i think that's why they wanted engineers was there was getting more tech heavy it was kind of early in algorithmic trading days um and so they were hiring tons of engineers science math into finance world uh when that was at the time that i graduated and so that was what what i did and it was definitely an interesting experience um to say the least yeah yeah I mean, you, you mentioned that this was when Wall Street began to adopt or bring in more engineers, but I'm just going to go back to the previous context when you were focusing on biomedical engineering to an extent. What was the biomedical engineering field like back then? Because I don't want to date you by naming the specific years, but were there any specific notable events that you could point to that shaped your experience or, or, or something such as that? Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, definitely there was a lot still going on in biomedical and it was just you know when at waterloo we didn't have a medical stream but other universities had i think you know we we're seeing a lot in in medical devices one of the areas that just jumped out at me at, at the time was getting a lot into mri physics and advancements in mr imaging that was a very interesting area um at the time and, and it still is right and i think it just it's amazing what was happening in that space looking at you know different types of nuclei with different coils and different accuracies and looking at all sorts of different sites. So that to me was just uh, medical imaging, which is really exciting. A lot of, of my peers that went into biomedical engineering were focusing on imaging and whether that be startup or research, you know, Sunnybrook, Toronto, they were very active areas at the time, uh, still are. So that was just what jumps out to me as the really kind of notable um, innovations at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So now that we've got a, a bit of context uh, of your of two of your three worlds, um, was there any particular, I guess, culture shock jumping between the engineering and finance worlds at all? Like, was there anything that you struggled with or anything that, any funny stories that you remember there? Uh, well, it was, I think it was, it, it was a big change when you think going from, you know, living in New York, uh, on wall street, uh, you know, making a salary and, um, you know, getting invited to cool events and all that stuff and then flipping to a student, uh, you know, living in, you know, a small place uh, in Toronto and having no money and, you know, having to you know, go into debt and pay for school. So it's this radical shift in a matter of, you know, months of, of what happened to life, right? So um, I think that was just probably a notable change. And then, you know, missing, you know, just everything about the, where you would live for the past two years. And just, I remember actually even just, you know, the life that you developed when you were working and what we were like in New York, you know, just the way that, you know, even just the meals we had, the restaurants we went to, the routines you built, and then all of a sudden changing that. And then, you know, not having all of those there, not being able to see the same people you did, and all of a sudden having to find a new group of people, uh, new routines, new habits, and definitely much more academic focus, more time in libraries, and that shift that happened. So, you know, that was just kind of the, the one obvious point that happened. But, you know, from, I also thought it was, you know, it was quite amazing um, that the beginning of medical school, just you've got uh, such an amazing group of people coming together. Um, you know, just I always say, I, you know, 10% of my class was engineers. We had architects, you had, you know, all sorts of artists, all sorts of different people coming together. Um, it was really diverse and it was great. And it was just the discussions you had, the focus on understanding people more 
and all that went into medicine, uh, it was just a really special time too. So I remember uh, as much as this life had flipped upside down, what I was learning, what we were talking about day to day, how we were learning to understand people and understand medicine um, and doing anatomy. You know, we still had cadaver anatomy at the time. It just it was such like a, a series of really really um, monumental situations and, and learnings that that really stuck out as a really special time. And I still definitely remember um, parts of that of that first few months uh, in med school. Yeah, I mean, by by that time, you've already had had exposure to two vastly different fields, engineering and finance, which you could have done themselves or together to make a massive impact to the world. You mentioned before that why, like what had interested you before in medicine was the biology of it before, um, before university. But was there any reason particular you kept doggedly pursuing this path of medicine overall, despite the fact that you had been through almost two career areas worth already? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I think you kind of reflect back and, and you say, you know, I, I definitely love engineering and in finance, I would say I didn't really love it, but it was kind of one of those things where I didn't get into med school. I had this job offer and it was, I knew it was just an experience. I wanted to go try it because this was something there. I could have gone to med uh, grad school. I could have done this, but you know, this was a pretty unique opportunity that I wouldn't have had it again. So the finance one was definitely uh, at least I, I kind of knew that it wasn't a long-term one, but it was still a really neat experience. So I think that's what it, but at the end of the day, it, you know, I guess you just get set on from what you have seen, what do you really want to do? And if it takes me another year or two to apply to medical school, um, is that still right in the long-term? So what do the next 20, 30, 40 years look like? And, and what do I think would be something I would be happiest doing? And and I think that was what, what kind of pushed me along. I think, you know, finance, like I said, I always knew was let's learn what I can and move on. Um, engineering was something that I liked and I wanted to build into everything I'm doing. And I think there's lots of opportunity for that. But it was it was medicine that, you know, I'd see, from what I had seen from the outside was something that I wanted to keep doing um, and that it was worth a little more pain and time up front for the hopefully decades that come after that. Uh, and I think that was what really motivated me to kind of keep trying and to write the MCAT again and do all those fun things. So you'd really cultivated this, I guess, long-term mindset from the beginning, eh? Yeah, I think that I think that was, you know, I think I am a bit of a long-term thinker and, you know, obviously there's pros and cons to that. But, you know, to me, it's always, um, you know, the long term is what you have to play for, right? I think that's what you you plan for. At least that's how how I've always thought about things. And even when we come to you know inner analytics and all that, a lot of the way we've designed it is that long term thinking rather than the short term. Um, so that's just been a way that I've always kind of thought. Like again, for better or for worse. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So I mean, you you went on to to med school after your exposure to finance but one thing that i do want to finish off on when mentioning um that work with barclays is like what was the startup scene like back then i mean it the, the startup scene has rapidly exploded like since the since like the late 2000s but was there any interaction that you had with startups back then yeah not not really it was definitely you know, a lot of, I remember during graduation, a lot of people, you know, the big companies that were hiring were Microsoft or Google or banks, like the big companies. And there was less talk amongst the class about startups and all that. And, you know, it, one of the things with engineering, many of them have these regular design courses as part of it. And we had to do design projects all the time. And you know, many of these were really good ideas that could have been startups, but you kind of just do them, brush them aside, get through the course, move on. You want your job at, you know, big company X or Y. But uh, the way that the co-op system was at Waterloo is you often spent time with um, a, a group of engineers two years below you. They were, you were on stream and it just happened that you tended to be pretty close to that class below you. And in that class, you know, they graduated two years later, we had the financial crisis happening, we had a complete shift, uh, and maybe other factors at play. But that class I found was much more attractive to startup where many of them went to go work for startups, or started their own startups. So it was kind of, um, I, I, it was almost like that two year period where we saw this very sharp divide between um, you know, people in, in at least in, in, in our program at Waterloo that were going to work at big companies versus ones that were going to, to startups. Um, and so whether that was 
a class again of, of bigger economic factors or just growth in startup itself or the nature of that particular class. It could have been all sorts of things, but it, just for my experience, I, I definitely noticed that it was a couple years after us that we really started to see um, the startup in space grow. Uh, and then from them there, just kind of exponential increase of, you know, over the last few years. That's fascinating. The, the, the way that timelines interact in terms of like the broad scale, what everyone experienced and what your community experienced and how that shaped what you went on to do is, it's interesting to think of. But I mean, to talk more about your med school experience, you ended up doing a lot. And to, to highlight some of what you did uh, for the audience, you ended up being a production manager for the Toronto Notes. Um, and you also helped develop the Canadian Residency Guide. And you began developing and validating iPhone applications. So, I mean, you, you, did, you did so much. So what was your, I guess, favorite part or what, what were the most outstanding experiences during med school to you? You mentioned anatomy during the first couple of days or weeks of uh, medicine, but did any of your builds, projects or communities stand out to you the most? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. There's a lot that come to mind, you know, and I don't know if I can necessarily pick one. Being part of Toronto Notes is, was really cool, right? It's just, um, you know, what the impact that has, you know, the across the country and it's an important resource yeah. and, you know, what we can do in terms of, um, you know, being a not-for-profit with the, you know, with the proceeds of that. So that was just, it was, it was a fairly encompassing uh, year, but it was the whole class came together and you did something really great and you worked with faculty and it was all for a good cause. Like that, that was just really cool because it touched on so many different areas at once. Um, you know, probably the other interesting point that stands out is um it was something called uh it was a program with one of the psychiatrists called therapeutic uh, communication and and it was in our first year and it was kind of just a voluntary program you could do um and it was you know a psychiatrist that put a small group of, uh, of med school together students together and was teaching you how to have you know just build therapeutic alliance and communication and he had a very unique style at how he worked and he invited us into you know with patient permission into sessions with patients but also as part of that uh we had our own patient that we worked with who is you know obviously knew they were speaking with a medical student and we met with them longitudinally and we would share that learning back with our small group of people and we'd get kind of challenged around it and pushed around it and so you know i just remember that being a really powerful experience because of, of just the way we were pushed and challenged and what the, the depth of things that we talked about. Uh, and another interesting thing that, that stood out from that meeting was I remember the psychiatrist actually also wanted to, he was between psychiatry and surgery. His father was a surgeon. He thought about being a surgeon. And he's like, the reason why I ultimately went into psychiatry is that, you know, words can be powerful. Words can be like a scalpel. And when you know how to use them, you can have extreme precision and impact with how you do your words and your conversations. And so that was really what that was about. And, and again, it was just a really uh, powerful experience for, for her personal development. Um, also, I think, um, you know, with the, the patient I got connected with, I think it, you, you really focus on some learning a lot. And I think there was some really great things that came out of that, as well as my other classmates that we are working with and learning from together. So um, that was just a, maybe two experiences that come to mind, but there were so many over the course of, of, of our learning. I, I want to break down those experiences a lot more because they seem to have impacted you quite a bit. So could you tell me what exactly you did with Toronto Notes? Was it the founding of it? Because I'm not exactly sure as to what your exact enrollment as production manager was. Yeah, for, no, so Toronto Notes had been founded before uh, I started medical school, but uh, every year, um, you know, the the senior class, their role was to kind of refine the content, redo, make sure it was all accurate, package the new version, uh, deal with the printing of that, the marketing of that, the distribution of it. So, you know, it was it was really just kind of the ongoing uh, updating and development and kind of carrying that torch of the previous years that had created this. And so, again, as you know, we just need to make sure that guidelines were correct, that things were updated, that the, the content was accurate, um, you know, errors from previous you know, versions were fixed. Uh, and then just, like I said, the logistics of getting it, you know, printed and sent around and the accounting for it. And, you know, what do we do with the funds? So it really was this ongoing operational thing and ongoing growth of that. We had added a new book when we were uh, around a pharmacology book that got added into that spectrum book. So how do we grow um, and kind of maintain this overall kind of Toronto Notes uh, not-for-profit? That was really 
uh, what what we were about. And so as a production manager, we did a lot of the operational stuff, making sure that you know the book went well, that it got delivered, printed again, worked with the accountant. So it's just kind of making sure a bit more of the business side of ensuring that, that things could continue to run. You're, you're just full of foreshadowing, aren't you? <laughs> trying to help you out. That's it. Um, thank you. Thank you. You're just really steering me towards the right direction. Um, and then, I mean, in terms of the, the, the work that you did with the psychiatrist as well, I mean, having went through that myself, like I understand the, uh, the, the degree to which, uh, I, I guess interview skills must be honed, um, in order to make sure that that like therapeutic alliance can be established. But Overall, like, was that experience of working with that psychiatrist jarring at all? Because in comparison to the previous fields that you had worked with, with engineering, uh, as well as in the finance world, I don't think, or at least I wouldn't believe that there would be as much focus on the person to person interaction Would there, or am I incorrect? I mean, I, just, I think I do generally agree that this was definitely a much different experience. And I think that was probably why it stood out too, this was early on, but the first time that it was really getting at that person to person, you know, that depth that, and it was done, you know, in a, in a extremely interesting and detailed way. Right. So that was just something I had never really experienced. And so that's why I think it stood out. Um, and just having these examples of, of the impact of that, you know, for sure. Uh, and you're right, coming generally from, you know, engineering, finance, numbers, these sort of things, you know, it was even more of a new experience for me um, to kind of go through this program, right? So I think that it was probably a few of those things that made it stand out. And did those experiences at all shape your decision to go toward the, your, your specialties later on. I'll, I'll let you elaborate on what you've decided to specialize in, but I guess what shaped those interests? Uh, it's, it, yeah, you know what? I don't necessarily know if it, it fully did, like it maybe had some impact, um, but I think it was, it was, you know, a bunch of factors, right? Um, you know, I think it comes through, you know, your rotations, what mentors you meet along the way, um, what patients you've met on different rotations and all of those factors. Um, and I think like everyone, you're thinking about all different areas, you know, psychiatry, surgery, medicine, right? Like you kind of go through all those different thoughts, you know, could this be right for me? And, you know, I think in the end, I, I did prefer internal medicine. I thought that was just something that, you know, suited me well. And I'd, I'd met people well. And, it you know, there still is an, some important critical conversations that you can bring in, um, like anywhere in medicine. So I think that's where the learning that from you know, psychiatry was no matter what you do, you can bring this in. So don't worry which which area you go into from that perspective, if you like it. And then from there, you know, from internal medicine, I, I did find that, you know, one of the areas that personally, I didn't have great knowledge on. And I think maybe we don't have a lot of time for learning on that either, um, was just around the pharmacology of things. Um, and so that's why I did extra training in pharmacology and toxicology. I thought it was a way to kind of um, augment some of my interest in internal medicine. Uh, and so that was, that was really, it's been a very interesting area to go to and kind of getting at some really, uh, interesting multidisciplinary teams I work on now around just kind of drug interactions and how do we optimize those. Um, and then actually, I think from there, uh, I was starting to do a lot of hypertension work, did work with Hypertension Canada, um, just because a lot of clinical pharmacologists happen to be involved in this community. And, um, so, that's how I got involved. A couple of my mentors were already involved with that community. And, and you start seeing people um, for hypertension or can't tolerate their medications for hypertension. And they want to kind of say, how do I avoid medications in the first place? And so, you know, a lot of that was getting me to the fact that I need to think, you know, how do we augment what we're doing into that non-pharmacological bucket that sits in all the guidelines that I'm probably not as good at doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And that, that led me again, through various channels we can talk about into obesity medicine and lifestyle medicine. And so, you know, I think it's a very interesting combination where you can go from, you know, kind of pharmacogenomics, uh, drug optimization, but also pairing that um, with, you know, exercise and diet and how, you know, that whole package together um, can offer some really, you know, neat evidence-based care. So I think it is kind of been neat to be able to, to look across that whole spectrum um, and to try to figure out where someone is when you see them and what combination is right um, to give them the best care. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you mentioned like 30 seconds ago that we can talk more about how all of your work led up to you working in the field of obesity medicine. So 
how did that, how did that field of interest come by? And why did you do so much learning? There, there's so much school that you've done. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, I don't know if I have a good answer for why I've done so much school. Um, hopefully there will be no more. But uh, in terms of, uh, of obesity, I think, um, so with Inner Analytics, which we'll talk more about, um, naturally started working more with endocrinologists, obesity medicine specialists, uh, and patients that were often asking about how do I lose weight as a way to reduce or manage my chronic disease. Um, and so, and also just seeing complications in hospital of people with, you know, uh, obesity, other metabolic conditions. So that really kind of just meeting those people and hearing what they're doing got me interested in, in obesity medicine. Um, so I did train, we currently don't have obesity certification in Canada, but in, in the States we do. So it's a U.S. certification that's open to um, Canadians that, you know, have have kind of gone through training here in Canada. So I, I did my my training about two years ago down in the U.S. Um, and and I think it was, it was a really interesting experience for me. And, you know, just to maybe touch on kind of one or two takeaways as, um, I remember hearing a lecture and, and you know, um, it was talking about, you know, comparing obesity to like cardiology. And, and they said, you know, you know, we think about cardiomyopathy. So problems with heart muscles and we know that, well, it's important. It's, it's, it's a key aspect, but, you know, we don't really think about the same with our fat cells and, and, and they really are a pathology in the fat cells that's driving inflammation, cytokines, and a lot of our metabolic conditions. And, you know, we need to understand that more and treat it more like a medical condition. Um, and so I, I think that was one of the, the really interesting takeaways, as well as, you know, a lot of interesting pharmaceuticals coming down to be able to treat obesity now. And, you know, we've got GLP-1 agonists as one example, and there's many more coming down um, the pipeline. And so I think it's, you know, it's, it's a hugely important disease to target. I think, um, I think we're going to see more that we can do about it. And also, I think, you know, just that training made me more sensitive to bringing this up with patients who are, are quite appreciative when, you know, someone understands um, a bit more about, you know, how hard they're working and, you know, that it's not, you know, uh, they're not big because they don't care. They're not doing so. So just kind of going through all of those things really was just really valuable for me, and uh, and it's been something that uh, lets me combine a lot of my backgrounds around internal medicine, pharmacology, and kind of lifestyle prevention medicine all in one area, uh, and it's been really really rewarding. And you set me up for the alley oop there, combining different fields. How did how did the story of inner analytics come about? Yeah. So, you know, I. I'll go back to, uh, it was actually my co-founder, Elizabeth, who, who initially came to me with the idea. And so, you know, she, she herself had gone through an eating disorder when she was younger, went through a number of sessions with dietitians, and really just found it to be not, not valuable for her, not personal enough. And then, you know, she actually had, had her own business started and, uh, it was in kind of the entertainment industry and, and she had someone come in and say, uh, what's, how many carbs are in this and what's in that and what's this made out of? And, and she's like, what do you need all this for? And, uh, you know, eventually she spent a lot more time speaking, um, with this individual person and found out he was living with type one diabetes and that this is why it mattered. And, and the more she got to know him, they're actually pretty good friends now. The more she's like, well, how come you don't have tools to help you with this? And aren't there apps already? And she's like, yeah, they, they do, but none of them work. Uh, they're not easy. They're not proven out. They're not, you know, my doctors don't trust them and all these factors. And so ultimately what they came to me with, they said, you know, Jeff, you're in healthcare and you've done apps before. And you know, we need ways to make it easier to measure how we eat um, and to really detect like easily without a lot of burden what's in what's in our food and and trying to make that something that's a bit more kind of accepted by the medical community. Uh, and so to me, I, I, I'd been hearing some of those questions over the years from patients too, is, you know, how do I prevent medications if I'm really motivated to do that? And there's some things like, you know, exercise that I could kind of get a pretty good handle at, but nutrition, again, we don't get a lot of training on it. It's really hard to ask somebody what they ate for breakfast, you know, one or two days ago, uh, how their eat eating trends are, and then to be able to analyze that in a way that's useful for us. And so that's really what inner analytics came out is, okay, we want to find tools that make it extremely easy to enter food. So just taking a photo uh, or, you know, natural language processing so that we can we can really simply have people enter food. They can be, you know, 
five years old, they can be 80 years old. We want to make data entry super simple uh, and as accurate as possible, barring that, that simplicity. But then being able to transform that data into a way that can give direct feedback to a patient so they can self-manage better, but also give feedback to the clinical team. And even if you're not extensively trained uh, as a dietitian, that you can at least see the core aspects of this, of how someone's eating and how it mapped back to kind of best practice or chronic disease guidelines um, so that we can look at this more like we measure uh, a CBC or a Holter monitor uh, and we have a diagnostic test or report that we can use over time to guide change. And so that's really been a big part of what Inner Analytics is about. Mm -hmm. So correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just going to walk through the workflow of what it'd be like to use Inner Analytics. So for example, I would take a picture of the food that I have um, in the back end, essentially recognition of what the food is or my description of what it is, is processed to allow for the algorithm to pull out the nutritional content of the food. Um, as a result of all the reports that I put in, all that data is then put into a report that shows me what I may be deficient in, what changes I could make in order to meet my health goals. Is that correct? Yeah, very, very close. Very, very close. I think uh, maybe just a couple things to add on that, but I think you captured it extremely well. I think one of the key things that, that to stress about it is um, it, nutritional you know, aspects and you know, macros, micros are definitely a part of it and they, they are relevant. But what we wanted to take it to the next level was diet quality because a lot of the shift towards you know, don't eat, you know, your target is 100 you know, grams of carbs today or you know, cinnamon rolls. Uh, one, yeah, seven milligrams of iron a day, stuff that people can't do. And you're seeing a lot of this kind of philosophy stuff now, like is half your plate vegetables, um, you know, how often do you eat red meat? How often do you drink sugary beverages? Like stuff that you can track and that are relatable to people. And that's, again, what a lot of the, the guidelines are talking about. So, you know, with a, a team of dietitians who painfully added all these attributes to our database, we can then actually get at diet quality. And so a big part of what comes out of the report is, you know, these are the types of proteins you're eating. Uh, this is the fried food you're eating. Um, you know, these are the types of grains, whole grains. These are the types of fats that you're having. Um, these are the amount of sugary beverages you're having. So again, trying to make that very simple. Uh, and then, you know, here's where you're at. Here's where the ideal goal is. Um, and then some suggestions on how do we kind of nudge into making those changes. So I think one of the key points is, you know, is that that layer of complexity. I know at the highest level, just the quality is actually easier for, for many people that aren't as, you know, don't have extensive training like myself in, in understanding what we can do in a way that patients can understand. Um, but then if you want to build onto that, you can have more depth, like a dietitian gets to more specific things or a heart failure dietitian gets at potassium and what are the potassium foods. So you can build depth into that, but at the highest level, that quality helps to kind of simplify takeaways and, and kind of take a, a very complex space of nutrition with all sorts of different studies telling you that things are good and bad and tries to simplify it back into your diet quality and how that maps back to guidelines to make change. I, I think this is this is really fascinating. It's a really fascinating advance, but in order to put it best into context, what do you see a lot of diet doctors, family doctors, doctors overall doing to get uh, an understanding of their patient's diet right now? Like what's the current standard of practice? I think it varies, you know, definitely. Um, you know, uh, there are definitely food frequency questionnaires, you know, how often do you eat this or that, uh, which are common. Um, it might just be a bit of a, you know, uh, tell me what your typical meal is like, right? Um, so it's a lot of kind of approximation and interpretation of what the patient thinks about sizing and what they're eating and how they're cooking it and trying to relay that across. Now, of course, if you're a dietitian, you have a lot more time to dig into those details. But as physicians, you're kind of just trying to get the, the big picture about, you know, the, the quality. And again, it's based typically on, you know, some average type stuff they eat or some free food frequency type kind of input. And then you're trying to decipher that or, or give kind of recommendations around that. And I, I kind of also make it akin to, uh, you know, what I see a lot of hypertension patients, as I said, and so, you know, one of the hard, the more frustrating things in hypertension clinic is when someone writes out, you know, 
two months worth of blood pressure numbers on a piece of paper. And ultimately you just care about that average, right? What is that average like? And you're trying to sit there and figure that out and, you know, estimate it. Uh, and it's the same idea. Even if you have a list of averages or how often they eat something, you want to have that summarized to a point that is very clear. This is what I need, right? This is the points. Um, and then I think the other advantage over traditional practice where you may then be very generalizing, giving general recommendations, say, you know, okay, based on what you tell me, maybe try to do X, Y, or Z. It's still very, uh, it's not as specific. Whereas if I have specific examples of what they're eating or exact numbers, it lets you kind of hone in on two or three things, be more precise. And by being more precise, I think you've got a better chance of change, right? I can give you exact examples and kind of actually talk through whether that's something that the person's willing to change or not. And hopefully you can land on at least one or two things that they that are very specific for them that change. So that's kind of the where I think inner analytics helps go above a more standard way of, of assessing and trying to provide recommendations. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like the need that you're trying to solve is that gap in understanding between what data patients can provide by writing all their information down on a piece of paper, sometimes in the waiting room right before a visit, um, uh, and what physicians need in terms of like what your sodium or potassium intake is normally, correct? Yeah, I think that's that's a part of it for sure is is, is that and, and also just changing the idea that, you know, assessing nutrition should be part of, of regular practice. You know, diet is a one of the largest contributors for chronic disease um, and just making it like, you know, we, we order, you know, periodic blood tests, right? We should also do periodic nutrition assessments. And so this should be part of our, our measurements, our regular measurements. Um, and we should get quantifiable data around that, that we can look at over time and, and use um, around it. So I think it's, it's a, it's a bit of, of making it easier, um, but also just changing the way we think about nutrition, because if we can measure it more objectively, um, you know, how do we make this a more regular part of our assessments? And so, um, you know, everybody could benefit from a, a nutritional assessment at some frequency. And so it's kind of changing that. And, and clearly we need technology to be able to do it at that scale. Um, and that's where kind of inner analytics come in. So we, we've talked quite a bit about what inner, inner analytics can do and what it's supposed to do overall. But throughout all of the development of this company, of the product overall, you've continued to work as a clinician. Why have you continued to do that? Because there seems to be so much work when it comes to building partnerships, as well as reaching out to physicians to see if they'll adopt this tool or figuring out how you can tweak the tool to see like what best works for them. Why have you continued your clinical work when there's so much work to be done in this tool that has such a possible, like possibly large scalable impact? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it, it comes down to personal preference whenever you're doing this is, you know, I, I did spend a lot of time training on medicine, a lot of school training on medicine, and I do really enjoy it. And so, you know, I, I still think practicing medicine is, is important and is something that brings me a lot of joy. And, and you know, uh, I feel that I can still make impact uh, on, for patients on. So that's why it's important to me. The other thing is, at the end of the day, anytime you're creating technology, if you create it in a silo, you you, you run into implementation problems. And so being able to actually use this with your patients um, and, and to have that kind of um, that frontline feel of it lets you design and fit it better into practice. So I think it also helps the development of the technology by, by actually being able to use it and see, um, you know, different scenarios and problems and benefits of it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you, you've told me a little bit about, you know, just now why you would, why you would perhaps continue your career as a clinician during the development of the, the, the startup itself, I guess overall, um, has, has, has that experience in itself using the, 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 the service or sorry, the inner analytics in itself in your clinic allowed you to perhaps better understand, uh, what the user interface is like and how it would need to be employed. Like how important has that in-person use been to developing the tool as it, as it, uh, pertains to patients? as well as physicians. Yeah, I think it's it's critical, right? And, you know, one of the big parts of my engineering was, you know, we did a lot of user-centered design. That was a big part of, of my training. And I'm, I'm, I think it's really important, right? Because if you can't interact with the system it, to the center, if you can't get good data in, we can't do anything with our algorithms, right? So we need it to be easy and simple and enjoyable to get that data in. And so, um, you know, you, 
there's so many different situations that come up and how people use it and ages and abilities and, you know, interpretations of what this is. And so by being able to iterate on that much quickly, uh, much more quickly, because, you know, we're developing it and I can use it and I can test this out and then I can give that feedback. Um, it lets us kind of iterate faster and design better. But I think that's, that's absolutely essential because again, to the point is if people don't use it to get the data in, then everything else um, becomes useless, right? So so that interaction, that usability is ever so important and, and being able to kind of run that at day to day and see how that works just gives you a really kind of unique perspective and, and kind of an advantage to be able to kind of push it the right way fast. Mm-hmm. And to, to zoom out back a little bit more, your experience as someone who's had um, a background in finance as well as in engineering and now in very specialized medicine, um, that is unique to a lot of the physician founders or in comparison to some of the physician founders that we've chatted with. So what were the exact challenges that you faced while building inner analytics? Yeah, I think um, there's lots of challenges anytime you start something new, right? And I think it comes down to a few things. So product, right? So that product includes, is it usable? And you know, do you have the right people to build the technology? Um, you know, ongoing challenges for that is just recruiting. It's extremely difficult to recruit engineers and, and technology people now. And um, so just kind of getting the right people that get your vision early on um, is really important. And then, you know, I think the other thing is just accuracy. Like we have to come in and say, you know, a lot of people say on face value, how is this any different than a MyFitnessPal, for example? And we have to show data uh, on why it's better, right? And so, you know, really focusing on accuracy, quality assurance, getting research data done, um, and being able to show transparency is, is a really big one. Um, you know, less of it now, but learning kind of PHIPAA and going through, you know, hospital, you know, documentations. And, you know, that's, that was intimidating earlier on, but how do we make sure that our tech meets all the requirements that we can get through that, that hoop and, you know, once you get it done, it's, it's not too bad. And then definitely the business model, right? Like, I think we don't think a lot about what is the business model that's going to support this going forward. And, you know, you, you're often naive about what you think is going to be a model that works within the healthcare system. And so, yeah, so really it's, it's just kind of learning that model, figuring out what's going to work, making sure that the product's accurate. And these all are kind of going at the same time, right? You've got, you know, clinicians that are interested to use it and then you have to make sure that you have a business model that can support it and then make sure that you can keep the technology up with that business model or you know when do you have to raise money or not so it just becomes a very interesting kind of balancing act of all of these different things and and i think you know it, it takes time no one's going to get it right once you have to learn that it's going to be a lot of experimentation and trying to figure out what that right balance is yeah so okay so i i have i'll have two streams of thought that i follow up in our last like the last 11 minutes but um, first off, I would have thought that it would be easier for you to find the right kind of engineers and to recruit engineers as someone who's had experience engineering yourself and with a co-founder who's had background or a background in engineering. So why is it difficult to recruit the team members that you need? Uh, I think, you know, so you have to get the right person. You're still as you're, a, you know, as you're still relatively small and you, you need the people that that buy the vision, right, that get the vision get the concept you want that that people at least that's, that's our approach i mean there's there's people that you can hire but you know we we believe a lot in getting that right person that that has that vision that can contribute at, at a critical time of growth and this is on a background of just in general uh very difficult hiring across the board right i think you know over the last couple of years with COVID, we've seen just significant challenges uh in in kind of recruitment and especially engineers have been hard, you know, big tech expansions, you know, Amazon, Google is coming in and just, you can work from anywhere, pay you big salaries. And so you're now competing against a lot, right? So I think it's just the background that there's, you know, big demand for, for engineers and technical people. Um, and then just trying to find the people that share your vision. Um, it, it takes time. And, and I think it, it took time even before the pandemic, but I think it's now taking even more time. Uh, and, you know, we are lucky to have good networks and, you know, good advisors to kind of help us with our recruitment pipeline. Um, but like I said, it, it still takes time to find a good person 
um, that's going to bring the right fit to what you need. Um, at least for now, especially when oftentimes, you know, people are having to wear maybe two hats instead of just one when you're in a startup phase. And then, you know, as you kind of narrow down, you know, you get that more specialization. So that's been some of the, the learnings we've had is how do you really kind of really recruit the right people? Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned their network and advisors, but most physicians who want to start their own startup may not necessarily have that network of engineers, um, or ad advisors who may help them best build out an MVP of their product and help them scale in those early stages where everyone has to wear, as you said, two hats. So if you could boil it down to a couple points, how would a non-engineer without the network that you have approach this problem? Because it's absolutely critical to building out new tech. Yeah. And, and you're, it's a tough one. I don't know if I have a great answer. Um, I think, you know, you, if you can find a, you know, a CTO of type person that's, that, is in that space like you know that's going to be really valuable is you know who can you recruit that that has that network right um that's probably going to be best now you know as a secondary kind of mvp approach you could look at you know hiring you know companies to do it that's you know there's a lot of risk to that you know that product may not be built um sustainably it may not be scalable you may have to redo it at some point so there's risk to it but you know, if that helps to kind of prove out uh, an MVP, prove your business model so you can raise more money, et cetera, definitely like that, that could be done. Um, and, you know, as much as it's maybe not what you want, though, actually, there's some really great courses out there that can help people learn coding, um, depending on your scope relatively quickly, right? Like if you can divert mm -hmm. a few months to learning something, you may be able to build a lot of that, that basic model on your own. Uh, and kind of be able to to kind of do something that way. So those would be kind of the the three tips that that come to mind. But but it's tough. Yeah, yeah, it is tough. And I mean, speaking of tough things, building a business model uh, for a service for which there's not necessarily any fee code in the Canadian healthcare system must be difficult. So how did you approach that? Um, and what were the exact trials and tribulations that you have faced and are facing? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think, um, you know, you, you start looking at that kind of, again, that's where you get to the naive point where you're saying, oh, look, it should be easy to fund this. And then you realize that there's not an exact code to it. There's also differences at the different provinces. So I think one of the things we've learned is to make sure you get, you know, good good people from some a lot of the different provinces that understand their billing codes and talk to them because sometimes there are ways that, you know, it would qualify. And so we've, we've been able to do it in some places where we've been able to speak with their um, kind of provincial organization and actually figured out what the requirements would be. And then that may have required some design changes to make sure that we meet those things. But, you know, there, there's a lot of local factors that um, you want to spend that time to understand the exact requirements of a code and then see if you can make sure that, that you meet that. So I think a couple times we've been able to do that. Um, and then other times you have to kind of be creative and, and look for, for other ways to do it. And so sometimes we, we go to a clinic or a hospital and we say, look, you know, we're actually going to save efficiency. Um, and in terms of workflow of people, you can see more people. And so it's oftentimes trying to find, you know, those different metrics and trying to map that back to an ROI. And, and it does take a bit of a leap of faith sometimes for that first client to come on. And then once you have one or two, uh, and then, you, you know, the key thing is to keep measuring how you improve that. Um, that metric with real customers so you can then create more and more data to get other other centers to come in and buy it um, and then you look at kind of other kind of again various groups and pockets in the system there's all sorts of pockets of money and then how do you appeal to that specific group um, you know how can you drive value to that group um, and then oftentimes you know sometimes they're willing to take that risk sometimes you've got data to support it sometimes you have to do small pilot with them uh, for free and, and and really kind of make sure you pick that right metric uh, and make sure you have that downstream buy-in that if you prove it, that there is value in procurement potential. And so, you know, we've had to do a lot of those sort of things um, to just kind of make sure. So I guess, you know, we've tried, you know, there's probably about three different ways we work depending on the province and the group we're working with. But, you know, we've kind of got it simplified down to some extent. And and, and that was just, it takes a lot of kind of just playing around until you get it right, as well as looking at, you know, private insurance and other kind of avenues that you can kind of get into. So I think many startups go with this, you know, what is the model that's going to work? And, you know, the, the point is to try to keep it as simple as you can, but acknowledge that, you know, early on, 
and even some fairly large companies, they may be still experimenting with a few different models. Uh, and then, you know, I think the key point is to always be mindful of which one of these models is going to be the one you want to really go after, which one's going to give you the best ROI. And at some point you may have to really push on that one. Um, but you know, it's okay to be experimenting with a few and just seeing how they go. And that's what we've had to do. Yeah. It seems like healthcare reimbursement is such a complicated, like, I guess, issue to handle, especially for services, um, or, or, or software that may have multiple uses or multiple buyers, not just a device that serves a specific function in an OR, for example. Um, but you know, we've we've mentioned two issues here already: just building out the 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 engineering team, as well as finding reimbursement. Among those two, how you split the time overall? Because I think one thing that I've noted about physician founders is that they they don't have time, right? That's the limiting factor. So how do you balance the the enormous amount of time necessary to solve both those issues, which are critical to making sure that the startup survives? Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, we've, you know, you gotta, you gotta have the right people, right? That's a big part of building that team. Right. Um, and so I, you know, I have a, one of my, my actually roommates from Waterloo, he's our, our CTO. And so, you know, him and, and our CEO is doing a lot more of recruiting. And we also have a really good friend advisor who spent many years recruiting for a, a major tech company in the U S. So we've kind of built this, this recruitment team. And, you know, they're doing a lot of, of the key work. And of course, I'll help out where I can and meet out where, but it's kind of, we, we built that team. And then we have our reimbursement team. And that's where I spend more time because I see more of that. Uh, and I spend time talking with doctors in Canada and US and, um, you know, how do we do different models? And we've, you know, tapped into billing specialists in the US as well. So, you know, to me, I'm looking at at this reimbursement side and really trying to understand what that looks like and, and, and really kind of build that out and, and, and kind of being able to grow that in different areas. And so I think it's having that team again, that you can build around you becomes critically important, especially as you get busy. And as a physician founder, like I said, you got to maximize your time or like any founder for that matter is how do you get the most out of that team around you to achieve the goals? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it, I guess, do you know what time it is, uh, Jeff? Yeah, it's, it's uh, well, at our time, it's two minutes it's, to one uh, Eastern time. And it's, it's, it's time for you to plug your pluggables. Do you have any social media plugs or any websites that you'd like to plug? I mean, to, to us, I think the biggest thing is, you know, uh, you, Inner Analytics, you know, we are on, on Twitter, we're on LinkedIn, we're on our website. Uh, but I think the big thing that, that I'd like to plug is if, if you are, um, you know, a hospital, if you are a doctor, if you're a student and you're interested in the fact that we need to measure and use um, nutrition more effectively, like those are the champions we're looking for. So um, please reach out, tag us, you know, um, and, and, and we're very open to kind of working with groups that want to make that change. And we are trying to shift the way that, that people think about uh, measuring diet and nutrition. Uh, and that's who we're looking for, for people to align with. Awesome. And you can find How It's Med at, at How It's Med on LinkedIn and Twitter, uh, Macadamian Technologies at a similar tag on Twitter as well. And howitsmed.com is where you can find the rest of our episodes. Thank you so much. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, please download and rate our episodes on whatever platform you listen on. Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it wherever you listen to or on our website, howitsmed.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Till next time. Bye-bye.